Beloved, if you will open your Bibles, please. We're looking today in Galatians uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Galatians chapter 3. And now as I share today, and as I was pondering on this, I couldn't help but notice that over and over and over and over and over and over again, that Paul keeps coming back to this theme that he threads throughout the little book of Galatians, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Alone, It's almost as if he is holding forth a priceless diamond. And he wants us to see this beautiful stone from every angle. And it's as if he is turning it that we might see every angle as he brings up this truth, this foundational Christian truth, this doctrine, this theology that salvation is by grace, not of good works. And so let's dig in and see what he has to say to us uh, today. It is such a joy to be with you. I mean, it is. It's an unspeakable joy. I'm having just a little bit trouble catching my breath. The Spirit of God is moving. Don't miss it. Set your sails to catch it. The first thing I want you to see is what I call the precedent or model. Look with me in Galatians 3. We're just going to look at one verse to start. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So what Paul is doing here, if I might paraphrase for him, I'm knowing he's appreciating that today, uh, that what he's saying to us is that God's covenant is similar to a contract that has been brought together by two men who have signed on the dotted line. It has been notarized. It has been ratified. It has been filed. And it cannot be overturned. That's what he's saying. And I gave you the definition for the word. Word ratified because it's a word we don't use very often. Webster defines ratify as this to sign or give formal consent to a treaty, contract, or agreement, making it officially valid. And so what Paul is saying is, you're familiar with contracts? When they're signed, they're valid, and no one can overturn them. That's what he's saying, and that's what he's going to build upon in the following section of text that we're going to look at. But he uses this word, ratify. And I was thinking how very often we use words we do not fully understand. And that reminded me of of a story as it's prone to do. Whoops. So, uh, let me just tell you about my little twinners. You know that Craig and I have grandchildren, six grandchildren, and what, that includes a set of twins, a little boy and a little girl. And they've been so much fun to watch the interaction between these two. Well, these little guys were three and a half years old when this happened. I was babysitting with the twins, and we had been reading. They loved to read books, and we had been playing on the floor, and I had turned on cartoons. And I remember that Kendall had been reading some books with me, but something caught her attention, and she walked over in front of the TV. 
Now, right behind her was this big, heavy coffee table. And as she looked up to watch the cartoon, she stepped on a toy and it rolled her ankle and threw her backwards. And that little peanut, who was, you know, only about this tall, came back against that heavy coffee table. The edge of it hit right across her lower back. And I knew she was hurt. I'm telling you, I was springing into action, jumping over there, scooping up that little baby. And she, it hurt her so bad. You will understand this. When she opened her mouth to cry, no sound came out. That's how bad it hurt. And so I'm trying to console her and soothe her. And she now has found her voice and she is just screaming. It is hurting so badly. So as I'm rocking her, her little twin brother comes over and he is patting on her. Now, this is the fascinating thing about these two little munchkins is that Keller could not bear for Kendall to cry even if he was the one who had made her do it. (laughs) I saw him snatch a toy away from her and when she started howling he put his arm around her and was patting her hold the toy out of her reach. So he's over there and he's just loving on her and he's saying, it's okay, sissy, it's okay, it's okay, sissy. And I said, Kendall, let me look and see. I needed to see if she was bleeding. I thought she'd hit it hard enough that she might be. And so when I looked across her back, there was just this red mark, but no blood, praise God. And and Ed Keller comes over there and he looks at it and he said, oh, sissy, don't you worry. There's not a hematoma there. (laughs) Now, mom is a nurse. But I got to tell you, at three and a half, he used a word. I don't think he fully understood what that word meant. So that's why I gave you the reference for ratify. Now, the Judaizers were arguing that since the law came after God's covenant with Abraham, the law had priority over salvation by grace through faith. And Paul is setting out a very logical argument that that is not the case. Once a covenant has been ratified, once it has been ratified, no one can set it apart or set it aside. So keeping that in mind, let me just move us along to what I call the promise, the promise. Now, the promises, verse 16, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. In other words, Paul is telling us that Christ is the seed that is coming, that was coming in Abraham's day, that we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Beloved, in the text that we're looking at today, which is chapter 3, 15 through 29, the word promise is used eight times. And what Paul keeps looping back around is that God made a promise to Abraham some 430 years before the law was given through Moses and 
that promise cannot be set aside or undone. Now, I know that you did a little of this in your workbook this week. Uh, Donna wrote that lesson, and I know she had you uh, uh, doing some work in the uh, text back in Genesis, but I just couldn't resist showing this to you. So if you'll hold your hand there in Galatians and turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, I just want to show you the basis of this because this part is so important. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, now you will recall, his name will later become Abraham, but as you will recall, he was an idolater, and God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to come away from his people and to go to a place that God would show him. Go forth from your country, God said, and from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now he begins a sevenfold promise. Verse 2 I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did you notice that God said to Abraham, who had been a heathen, a Gentile, and now God is going to make him the father of his nation, of the nation of the Jews. But he says seven times, I will, I will. This is an unconditional promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham did not deserve it. He did not earn it. There was nothing he could do to earn the favor of God. And beloved, this should bless you on so many levels, not the least of which is he was an idolater. Have I already said this? An idolater living among those who worshiped idols. And God called him forth. And all that was required of Abraham was faith. Let's just sit with that for a minute. This is the promise of God, and it cannot be set aside. We know that Abraham, from our previous studies, had some huge missteps. I mean, some big missteps. Hagar's just one of them. And yet God pursued Abraham... And would not break the covenant because it had been promised to him. It wasn't up to Abraham. Wow. That means it's not up to me and you. God has declared that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Because we are in Christ. Beloved, he has promised. He has promised Those exceedingly great promises were initiated by God and they were unconditional. All God required was faith. Now go on to Genesis 15. This is sort of the next phase because God ultimately gave him uh, uh, 20 promises. And for your own study and edification, I have included all of those on the very last page of your notes in case you want to do some further study on the promises of God to Abraham. So, Abraham now is talking to the Lord. 
in 15.2, Genesis 15.2, Abraham says, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? Uh, I don't have an heir. And uh, verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, that is one of your servants, but one will come forth from your body. Look in verse 6. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. He said, I am the Lord. I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abraham said, Lord God, how may I know this? And so God ratifies his covenant promise. He tells him to gather up some animals. This is in verse 9. In verse 10, um, Abraham brought all these animals to him and he cut them in two and he laid them. uh, He laid each half, excuse me, opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. No, I don't know why. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, know this, know this, I am cutting this covenant with you to make sure that Abraham knew that God had initiated the promise and that God cannot lie and the promise was unconditional. He put Abraham to sleep when he ratified it. Now, typically, both men who would come into a contractual relationship, who had made a covenant, both of them would walk through the pieces of the animals that had been chopped in two. But in this case, God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. He goes to sleep while God does it on his behalf. Is this just settling on anybody's soul? This is what the cross is all about. While we were yet in our sin... Christ died for us, and God raised him from the dead, proof positive that he was exactly who he said he was. So don't lose this truth that the promise was unconditional and could not be overturned, and that Abraham really had no part in it except responding in faith. Now, John Phillips says in his commentary, on Galatians, and by the way, if you're interested in getting additional outside information, John Phillips is one, he is my hands-down favorite commentator. Uh, He wrote a a wonderful uh, commentary on Galatians, and he says this, the supreme goal of the promise to Abraham regarding the seed was the advent of Christ. Everything hinges on promise, not works, on Christ not Moses, on faith, not law. Not only that, beloved, we see from this text that God initiated the relationship and that God made a promise that was unconditional. Do you understand that when you and I were dead in our sins, God initiated a relationship with us in Jesus Christ? Beloved, we did not wake up one day and decide we were going to go seeking after God. God was coming after us, coming after us to reveal himself to us, to show us that we were a sinner in need of a Savior, and Christ was our Savior. And whosoever will may come, that anybody who was willing to come to him in faith could be gloriously saved, not because of what you and I can do for him, but because of what he has done for us. Warren Wiersbe said, 
God's way. The Mosaic law was not a new way of salvation that canceled God's promise to Abraham. That would not be logical. Promise and faith go together, but not promise and law. Are you, you can flip back to Galatians, but now are you picking up on the power of this covenant promise that God made to Abraham? The takeaway that I want you to get, and oh God, help me present this in such a way this will resonate in all of our souls. The takeaway is this, God cannot lie. And what he promises, he will do. Beloved, we live in a world where many people make shallow promises they don't intend to keep. Not God. God promises and he can be trusted. We've just walked through such a difficult season uh, as I have battled breast cancer and I had to come back to this over and over and over again. You see, you cannot be struck with that kind of diagnosis and that kind of uh, hard place without having to do some mental gymnastics with the Lord. Do you get what I'm saying? You cannot just walk through this. You cannot just waltz through this. You cannot just uh, act as if nothing bad is happening because something very serious is indeed happening. And the impact of it uh, took Craig and I out of ministry for a year. We're still trying to recover and find our way back uh, through it. But this is my point. As we walk through this, what we were clinging to were the promises of God. Even though the circumstances were looking mighty bleak. And even though there were days that I I would just cry. I was in so much pain and discomfort and I was confused. And there were hard days. I don't want you to think that I just went right through this as if nothing was happening to me. There were hard days. But God was faithful. And this is what I found. In those hard moments, not a God that was chastising me for unbelief, but a God who was saying, child, you just come right on up here in my lap. You just come on up here. Let me hold you so close. You can feel the beat of my heart. Now you just rest here. You just rest here. We are allowed to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. But you and I need to understand it's because of the promise of God. He is faithful. He is faithful even when you and I are not. He is faithful in good times and he is faithful in dark times. Because he is faithful. He told Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he did. And he's speaking to you and I today. To remind us of the promises of God. Our God cannot lie. He said, I will never leave or forsake you. In some of those dark days, I remember thinking, even though I cannot make sense of any of this, I know his presence is here because I know his promise is sure. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you better believe that because I go away, I'm coming back. And even though, beloved, life is hard and there is suffering and there is misery and there are things we simply cannot explain, we can't trust God. Are you getting that? God is faithful. 
He is faithful. James says he changes not that he, there in him there is no shadow or variation. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The takeaway is the promises of God stand regardless of how you and I respond. Now that does not give us liberty to live any way we want to. It fuels us to pursue holiness and righteousness, to make our belief match up with our behavior, to make our position in Christ be lived out, beloved. That is the promise of God. There are days we look around and we wonder, where is he? I tell you, he's on the throne. He's on the throne. And his promises will not fail. They will not fail. I want you to look uh, at 2 Timothy. Now, if you will go, uh, we're in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. The next books, the next five books, I'll start with the letter T. We have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians. First and second Timothy and then Titus, I want you to stop in Second Timothy. Because this verse just has echoed in my brain for years. And I want you to see how precious it is. Second Timothy chapter two and verse thirteen. If we are faithless, he remains what's the word? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I have blown God's will for my life, can I just tell you, you are not that powerful. (laughs) You know, I wonder after Abraham allowed Sarah to be taken, saying that he was, um, that she was his half-sister, and when they were don't you know when he finally, when she was finally released and the two of them came back together to start on their journey, don't you know that was rough? <laughs> there was either miles of the silent treatment or there were miles of some words. I can just see Abraham beginning to back up with all this sheep, moving the flocks back, moving the flocks back. Don't you imagine in that moment... That Abraham doubted that God would ever use him again. Now that doesn't give us license to live any way we want to. But doesn't that encourage you? That when we blow it and we do, when we are faithless, I tell you our God is faithful. And while there are sometimes consequences, sometimes serious ones, God promises hold what a truth what a truth now turn back to Galatians I need to move on although I I, I gotta tell you I can hardly get past this point of the promises of God and how faithful he is he is faithful beloved he is faithful well the last thing I want to show you is what I call the purpose because I like alliteration and they all started with P So in this particular part of of the text, 
Look in verse 19. When the law, why the law then? Paul is going to present us two questions and he's going to answer both of them. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, that is Jesus, would come to make, to, would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's question number two. Well, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which would later be revealed. Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Let's read that again. It's just so good. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. I love this passage. So Paul opens a section with a penetrating question. Why the law? The law was added not to annul God's great promises to Abraham, but to educate people in the scope and seriousness of their sin. The law was in force until the seed that is a reference to Christ would come to whom the promise had been made. The law could reveal our sin but could not redeem us from it. The law was given to reveal our sinful nature and to show us our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to ask a second question. Uh, look now in um, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? I think this is how Paul wanted it read. Are you kidding me? May it never, ever, ever, ever be. No, no, no way, no how. I think that's what he meant. <laughs> he was a passionate man. You can tell from his writings, believed so fiercely, grieved so greatly for the Galatians, knowing they were returning to bondage when they had been set free. And I tell you, the Spirit of God is saying to all of us today, you're free. You're free. You're free in Christ. You are not defined by what happened to you before Christ or what has happened to you after Christ. You are not defined by your failures. 
Most of you know that back in 2010, when the economy just bottomed out, that our little small family business was forced into bankruptcy, and we lost everything, our home and our farm and our land, and that's how we ended up living in a one-car garage out there in Moscow that we changed the name to the cottage because that sounded just a little more inviting than living in the garage. But, beloved, it is a one-car garage. We know the faithfulness of God. And when the cancer diagnosis hit, one of the first things that Craig and I discussed was we knew the faithfulness of God in dire situations. We had a history with him and that he is faithful. And the way he walked us through that very difficult time, I mean, that was a hard shaking in our lives. In that same way, when he was gracious and faithful and loving and kind, and when he ultimately brought us to a new place spiritually and gave us a whole new ministry, we knew he would do the same thing in the cancer journey. And i got to tell you, we're still not far enough away from us for us to really formulate all that God has done and taught us in it. But I'll tell you this much, my God's faithful. The God I know, the God I serve, he is faithful. I mean faithful to the very end. He is faithful. He pulls up close and he will not let us go. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel. Listen, listen. The purpose is that we might know the faithfulness of God. The law was not given to impart truth and a right standing with God. Its purpose was to reveal the whole world is guilty and in need of a savior. I love the illustration he uses in verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we may be justified by faith. That word tutor, and again, this was in your workbook, but it's one of my favorite illustrations that Paul uses. In the Jewish culture, a slave would be assigned to each child, and the slave would take that child, that the tutor would take that child to school every day, and the tutor would correct that child uh, rather aggressively if that child messed up in any way. And so the law is like the tutor that shows us our need of a Savior, And just like that tutor guided and guarded that child until that child came to maturity, in the same way, beloved, the law was given as a tutor to show us our need for Christ. Such an elaborate means that God chose to make sure that no one could say they did not know. They did not know about the holiness of God. Our tutor, and then he goes on to say in verse 27, you, you, I'm going to start again, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Oh, beloved, you and I are all dressed up in the robes of righteousness. Donna made mention of this last week, and it's just a truth I absolutely love, that when God looks at you and God looks at me as his daughters, he does not see us with all of our frailties and all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our missteps and all of our anger and frustration. That's not who he sees us. He's well aware of all of that, but beloved, he sees us complete in Christ. 
He sees us through the shed blood of Jesus that covers us. And he has clothed us, not in heaven when we die, although he will clothe us there as well. But he has clothed us in robes of righteousness so that as you and I live in this sinful world, others might see Christ in us. That, beloved, that is the message of Galatians chapter 3. Do you understand that at the moment of salvation, if God's only goal was to get you out of hell and into heaven, he would have taken you home in that instant? If that's all this thing was about, he would just take us home. And some days I wish he had. But there's more to it. Because he wants us to know the infilling of the Spirit of God and the living this thing out in preparation for when we live in all eternity with him. Well, I need to draw this message to a, a, a close. We're just about out of time. I'm not done. I'm not through, rather, but I'm done. Uh, and I wanted to close out with this little illustration. Uh, most of you know that Craig and I have two sons. Dawson is the one that lives here, the one with the twins. Jason and Patty have two boys, Declan and Liam, and they live in Austin, Texas. So a couple of months ago, they took the kids, uh, Jason and Patty, to Mexico to a resort for a vacation. And they had so much fun snorkeling and swimming and out on the beach and all of that. Well, one particular day, they had been out in the sun all day. And so in the evening, they'd all gone and cleaned up, went to the hotel restaurant for dinner. They had this wonderful dinner, and they're just having a great time. And Declan, who is 15, almost 16 now, excuses himself to go to the restroom. And he goes up to two enormous glass doors, sheer pieces of glass. The only thing that you could see of them were handles, brass handles. Are you with me? Yes, you're, you're tracking with me? Okay, and so as he pulls the handle, y'all, the whole door shattered. It was 12 feet tall and extra wide. And he said the sound was so deafening, he had no idea what had happened. And his first instinct was to look up, and glass was raining down on him. He said he instantly closed his eyes and tucked his head as, I don't know how much glass, it was safety glass, but it just rained down on him. And when he looked up to see his parents, who were now jumping over the tables to get to him, he was left holding the brass handle. Now, I have a picture of it. If they can find that to put it up for me, we'll give them just a second to see if they're able to. And if not, I'm just going to move right on. Uh, what was funny is my son Jason said, we got over there to him. And oh my goodness, they did not know what they would find when they reached him. But all of that glass fell on him. There was only one little nick on his leg and that was it. His hair, his clothes, he had on Crocs full of glass. And there he stood <laughs> holding the handle. Handle had, couldn't quite figure out what had just happened to him. This is our takeaway today. When your world crashes down on your head, hold on to the promises of God. They are yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for your word today. And thank you for the sweetness of the time as we've shared together as sisters in the Lord around the throne. Father, I ask, as we're watching you move in our nation, do more of it. Do more of it. May the Spirit of God blow revival into Memphis, Tennessee. And may your people be ready, waiting with expectancy for a new, fresh move. May we set our sails to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. And we invite you to come Holy Spirit in revival power. Lord, we are eager to see you face to face. We are anxious for our city to taste revival. Lord, if there's any precious woman, either online or here today, who does not know you, oh Lord Jesus, I am pleading with you by the power of the Spirit of the living God. Would you so work in her heart right now that she would sense you are drawing her unto yourself? Would you gently but persistently reveal to her she's a sinner in need of a Savior. She cannot do anything to save herself. It's not by works of righteousness. No one gets to boast about this. It is by grace through faith. Father, I'm asking that in this quiet moment, you move through and speak to each one of us as you deal with us ever so gently and tenderly. And Father, by your promise, we are able to stand. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for our time together. You are good. You are true, and you are faithful. In Jesus' name.